High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a triumph of the Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Jean and Jane. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free, or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? Last week was all Gene Seberg, all episode long. This week, we turn to Jane Fonda. When last we left Jane, she had just married Roger Vadim. Jane had felt unsettled by the Watts riots and the general feeling of instability in the air in Los Angeles in the mid to late 60s. And so she sought a measure of traditional security. But Roger Vadim was not a traditional man. Or perhaps... He was too essentially male, and the so-called sexual revolution gave him license to create a marriage that hewed to his sexual fantasies. Over the course of their marriage, Jane would hit peak sex symbol with the husband and wife collaboration, Barbarella, and the increased spotlight that put on Jane as a sexual being made her reevaluate who she really was 
and who she really wanted to be. The first thing she did after that was take on the first serious, deglamorized role of her career. Meanwhile, as she began to awaken to a number of social issues, Jane started to wonder if there was something else in life for her, other than being an actress, a wife, a mother, and a star. Join us, won't you, for Chapter 5 of Jean and Jane. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on. Or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. In many ways, Rajur Vadim had domesticated Jane. She had thrown herself and most of her income into building a home life for them to share outside of Paris, where she played part-time mother to his kids and nearly full-time hostess to his friends. When they were in Malibu, she began having a relationship again with her father, who was now with the woman who would be his fifth and final wife, Shirley Adams. Adams had chilled Henry Fonda out some and Vadim bonded with Jane's father. Family, for once, was beginning to become a source of strength rather than pain and anxiety for Jane. Even so, Jane and Vadim's relationship was hardly traditional. Jane was well aware that after their marriage, Vadim continued to sleep with other women. He pointed to a couple he was friends with, a French man and his wife, who had an arrangement that Vadim envied. Why couldn't the Fonda-Vadim marriage be like theirs? The next time they had dinner with this other couple, Jane asked them about their arrangement. The wife acknowledged that she allowed her husband to sleep with other women. She even helped find other women for him to go to bed with. 
Jane then asked the husband how he would feel if his wife took her own lover. That's completely forbidden, he told Jane. She would stop loving me. The wife concurred that this was true. She would lose respect for her husband if he let her enjoy the same sexual freedom that she encouraged him to enjoy. Jane and Vadim eventually worked out their own arrangement. Facing the fact that her husband was going to sleep with other women whether she liked it or not, Jane decided to control his infidelity by taking charge of it. She began allowing him to bring home call girls for he and Jane to share. Then, Jane started propositioning third parties herself. She would brag to friends that usually the female guest stars would end up falling for Jane instead of Vadim. And this was what she liked best about the arrangement, the feeling of power that it gave her. The arrangement was hardly kept a secret. Rumors reached Hollywood and New York that the couple were regularly hosting orgies. Eventually, it became something of a status symbol to be invited into Jane's marital bed. Jane and Vadim took lovers independently of one another, too. Their arrangement was that they just had to come home and tell their partner about their adventures. He believed that this was a worthwhile experiment to try to head off the dishonesty of his previous relationships. According to Vadim, Jane, quote, seemed to understand and always went all out, all the way. Yet I didn't know she was suffering, probably because she didn't want to admit it to herself, thinking she was wrong to hold on to the rules of a traditional morality which I told her was outdated. But the truth is that she simply wasn't made for that kind of freedom. Jane and I were the guinea pigs of an unstable era, and we did not know it. Vadim could be too honest. One night, they had a dinner party at their French country house, attended by Warren Beatty and his current girlfriend, who happened to be Vadim's ex, Brigitte Bardot. At the end of the meal, and after a lot of wine, as everyone was complimenting Jane on her cooking, Beatty gazed at Bardot and said, I know something that tastes even better. A drunken Vadim took this as an invitation to both remind Warren Beatty that he was merely treading through territory Vadim had conquered, and also hit Jane in the heart of her insecurities. Brigitte is indeed a morsel, Vadim said. Jane is not quite in that class. Professionally, Fonda wasn't exactly stimulated. Though she had enjoyed working with Marlon Brando on The Chase, she wasn't happy with the result. After that, she went into filming Any Wednesday, a sex comedy based on a play that feels like a retread of the kinds of movies Jane was making before Vadim came into her life and before her star had ascended to the point where she could demand better. Jane acknowledged that the character in Any Wednesday was what she called a silly young woman. She worried that if she kept playing silly young women on screen, she might never become anything else off screen. Any Wednesday would be received well enough to earn Jane a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress in a Comedy, but it didn't exactly have its finger on the pulse of the culture. To rub salt into the wound, 
During the filming, Vadim was back in France, and Jane received frequent visits from Peter Fonda, who was full of excitement about how his career was going. He had hooked up with Roger Corman and had begun starring in low-budget genre films that captured the fomenting counterculture. In Corman's The Wild Angels, Peter played the president of the Hell's Angels in a raucous fantasy of bikers gone wild. When Peter told his sister about one scene, in which his character and his biker friends turn a church-set funeral of one of their own into an orgy, Jane was shocked, which made her realize just how domestic and square she must seem in comparison, even with the threesomes. Vadim was trying to change that, with their next collaboration. In Vadim's mind, Jane had never played a character that truly changed over the course of the film, And with La Curée, or The Game is Over, an adaptation of a novel by Emile Zola, he had written a part that would force transformation. Jane played Renée, the gorgeous young wife of a French businessman who falls in love with her husband's 22-year-old son. When Renée decides she's really in love with the son and tells her husband she wants to leave him, the husband lets her go. But while she's out of the country filing for divorce, the father manipulates the situation to enact revenge. He tells his son, who falsely believes that his father doesn't know the identity of Renee's lover, that Renee had brought a sizable trust fund into the marriage, but that she would be walking away penniless because he had invested all of the money into his business. The father then suckers the son into agreeing to marry another young woman so that her money can prop up the family business. When Renee returns to discover that the father and son have conspired against her, she goes mad. While away, she's cut off her long, glorious hair, thinking it'll please the boy. Now, at the moment her womanly powers are at their lowest, her unflattering new haircut becomes a visual signifier of everything she's lost. If that sounds a little on the nose, well, welcome to the films of Roger Vadim. In both of the movies he'd write for Jane Fonda, he'd use her as a sex symbol in the most literal sense of the word, a tool for embodying his ideas about sex and power in a way that seems more allegorical than personal. The affair in La Curée is depicted in dreamlike fragments, showing the couple's intimacy, confession, and play, borrowing the jump-cut technique to collapse time, while dulling it of its power to startle. Most of the couple's trysts take place amidst the foliage, colored lights, and artificial water features in the father's massive winter garden. It's a setting at once Edenic and artificial. Which is not to say that La Curée lacks style, the compositions are beautiful, but it definitely lacks subtlety. The character progression Jane performs in the movie is the best thing about it. She begins as a woman whose entire job is to maintain her physical perfection. And thus, for the first part of the film, She's most often depicted either exercising or grooming herself. When the affair begins, her obsession with her facade disappears, and she becomes consumed by her heart and libido. Unfortunately for her, in Vadim's story, French bourgeois men choose mates based on money, 
It's an attack on his country's established mores. But of course, Vadim was guilty of living off of Jane's money, too. Maybe La Curie was a self-lacerating indictment of Vadim's own bad behavior in part. But he didn't exactly flatter Jane by casting her as a woman who has always had money and sexual power, and who loses her grip on reality when she loses both of those things at once. On set, Vadim tried to capture something of the real Jane on film. He kept telling her to dial back her performance, to just be herself. If things got tense on set between director and actress, Vadim said, We made up in bed. No matter how many disagreements we had, our physical life was formidable. This was another real thing Vadim sought to capture. Jane's inherent sex appeal. La Curie would include Jane's first real, although extremely tasteful and artfully concealed, nude scenes. It was not something Jane was excited about, but Vadim convinced her to do it. This was an extension of Jane's sexual performance for her husband in their off-screen life. And this became a snake devouring its own tail. Vadim wanted to share his personal sex goddess with the world, to elevate her into the male fantasy fetish object of the sexual revolution. He did not realize the extent to which Jane's sexual persona in real life and in their movies, was a performance that she created in order to please him. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. Jane could not just make French art films with her husband. She had bills to pay. And so, in 1965, she returned to the States to make two Hollywood movies. The first, Hurry Sundown, was directed by none other than Otto Preminger. Almost a decade after he had discovered Gene Seberg, Preminger's career was slowing down, but only after a period of great activity and acclaim. 
In the years immediately following Bonjour Tristesse, he had directed Anatomy of a Murder, Exodus, and The Cardinal, all box office hits that had been nominated for Oscars. He had also made Advise and Consent, starring Henry Fonda, which wasn't appreciated much in 1962, but would later be recognized as groundbreaking in the way that it dealt with homophobia. If Jane had heard about Jean's problems with Preminger, she probably wasn't trepidatious, because she had now worked enough to know exactly what she wanted from a director. As Jane would later put it, I like to be told exactly what to do, and Otto knows exactly what he wants. And Preminger had a track record of making movies that dealt with important social issues without alienating audiences. This was something that Jane was starting to think that she wanted to do. Hurry Sundown aimed to tell the story of racism in the South by putting a white couple played by Jane and, in a questionable choice, Michael Caine, against a black family whose land Caine's character wants to acquire. The film was shot in Baton Rouge, where the cast and crew soon came to understand the relevancy of the plot firsthand. Everyone working on the film was put up in the same motel. The black actors, such as Diane Carroll and Robert Hooks, were the first non-white people to ever stay at that motel. The first night they stayed there, a burning cross was erected on the motel's lawn. Later, Jane was walking down the street with a photographer when a little black boy ran up and handed her a flower. Jane bent down to give the child a thank you kiss. The photographer snapped, the kiss was published in all the newspapers, and Baton Rouge, where the Klan held influence, flipped out. The locals threatened the movie company, even shooting guns into their production trucks. Eventually, the production was run out of town. Through this experience, Jane came to realize what had and had not happened with the civil rights movement while she had been away in France. Her next film would be less politically enlightening, but it would do more for her career than anything had yet. Barefoot in the Park was another comedy based on a play starring Jane as a young bride having trouble adjusting to married life. But this one was a major hit. It opened in May 1967 and became Paramount's highest-grossing movie of the year. La Curée and Hurry Sundown were both released the same month, to bad reviews and negligible box office. But Barefoot was such a sensation that it didn't matter. After making 14 films in seven years, Jane Fonda was finally perceived by Hollywood as a major bankable star. But this didn't mean what it would have meant at the beginning of her film career. The studio system, as her father had known it, was over. She saw how her brother had built his own stardom, by working on movies that excited him with rebels like Roger Corman. Their latest collaboration, The Trip, made independently for just $100,000, joined Barefoot in the Park on the list of the top 20 biggest box office hits of the year. Cognizant that there was now starting to be more than one way to be a movie star, instead of staying in Hollywood to capitalize on the huge success of Barefoot in a crippled industry that was still figuring out how to get back on its feet... Jane invested all of her new star capital in her husband's all-out effort to mainstream pop erotica. 
Roger Vadim only managed to direct Barbarella because producer Dino De Laurentiis, who had bought the rights to the French comic strip that birthed the title character, had sent a letter to Jane asking her to star in the movie. Jane turned it down without even really thinking about it. The idea of a softcore porn mashed up with science fiction had no appeal for her. But when Vadim heard about the offer, he insisted that his wife reconsider. Vadim had been a huge fan of the comic strip. Both Sophia Loren and Brigitte Bardot had turned down the project because they thought the material was trash. But 10 years before Star Wars, Vadim explained to Jane that movies were changing and that disreputable genres like comic books and science fiction would soon be taken seriously the way westerns and noir now were. He thought about how Jane had a kind of split personality as an actress, depending on what kind of movie she was making. In America, she generally played sexual innocence. In France, she dramatized sexual liberation. What if you could combine the two into one character? Vadim envisioned Jane Fonda's Barbarella as, quote, a sexual Alice in Wonderland of the future. In a film set far in the future, she could play a woman with no hang-ups, no inhibitions, no morals when it came to sexuality. In other words, the 1960s sexual revolution man's ideal woman. So in August 1967, while Bonnie and Clyde, a movie Jane had turned down, was opening in the U.S. and slowly helping to change cinema... Jane and Vadim began shooting Barbarella in Rome. If you, like me, weren't alive in the 1960s, it's difficult to watch Barbarella today and fully register what it would have been like to watch it when it was new, when it was attempting a kind of visual fantasy that was just gradually seeping into mainstream cinema. That said, Barbarella opened five months after both 2001 A Space Odyssey and Planet of the Apes. And even just comparing it to those two movies, Barbarella looks pretty unconvincing. Your mileage may vary based on how much camp value you get out of it. I think Barbarella has a few interesting ideas and good jokes that add up to a pretty bad movie. But I walked away from it with total admiration for Jane and for her utter commitment to selling her husband's fantasy. Here she was, starring in yet another movie in which her French husband was directing her through a sexual awakening induced by a character with a French accent. And yet, Fonda doesn't come off as a woman who has been brainwashed into playing a sexual superhero by her husband. She comes off as a sexual superhero. She also delivers all of the movie's best one-liners, including one that was apparently ripped off and gender-switched for the recent Wonder Woman movie. Are you typical of Earth women? I'm about average. While playing this empowered goddess of sex in space, Jane was consumed with insecurity and obsessed with projecting the illusion of physical perfection. She still maintained her flawless body through compulsive exercise, bulimia, and dexedrine. There I was a young woman who hated her body and suffered from terrible bulimia, playing a scantily clad, sometimes naked, sexual heroine, Jane recalled later. 
every morning I was sure that Vadim would wake up and realize he had made a terrible mistake. Oh my God, she's not Bardot. The shoot was hard on both of them. Jane was put through the ringer physically, and she fueled her way through it with dexedrine and pot. Vadim began coping with his stress by drinking during the day. The special effects were totally experimental and the script was a work in progress. Sometimes Jane would pretend to need a sick day so that Vadim and his co-writer, Terry Southern, could work out a problem with the screenplay. When Barbarella finally finished shooting, Vadim directed Jane in a segment of Spirits of the Dead, an omnibus film in which three hot European auteurs each directed a short film based on an Edgar Allan Poe short story. Jane played a medieval countess who falls in destructive love with her cousin. Vadim cast Peter Fonda as the cousin. Spirits of the Dead is best remembered for the Fellini segment, Toby Dammit, which stars Terence Stamp as a Ferrari-driving drunk actor. But the Fonda-Vadim-Fonda segment has its fans. There are tribute videos on YouTube which condense the film into just the scenes in which Jane and Peter look hungrily at one another and touch. The promotion of Barbarella revolved around Jane's body in a very 60s way that combined agency with compliance. She was pictured on the cover of Life magazine in costume as Barbarella, armed with a gun. She was pictured inside the magazine, rolling around on a beach. The cover image said she didn't need a man and could take care of herself. The interior image said that you could have her. What could be more in line with a sexual revolution totally driven by male desire for sexual adventure at the expense of conventional responsibility. Through the Barbarella experience, Jane slowly began to realize that she felt unsatisfied with her life and her marriage. When she objectively assessed Vadim, she could realize that he was an excellent father. So she decided that she should have a baby with him. At the end of 1967, just after turning 30, Jane got pregnant. It turned out to be a high-risk pregnancy, and for the first few months, she was confined to bed. She was anxious about the way her body was changing. Would she ever be thin again? But soon she began looking outside herself. Up to this point, the social upheaval of the 1960s had only been on her periphery. She saw how her brother had found himself within the counterculture— she had participated in civil rights activism with Marlon Brando while making The Chase, and then she had seen how much progress there was still left to make when she had filmed Hurry Sundown in the South. One night in the fall of 1967, Joan Baez had shown up at the Fonda Vadim manse at 4 a.m. As she scrambled eggs, she told the assembled crew all about an anti-war march on the Pentagon that she had just been at, organized by Jerry Rubin where Abby Hoffman and Allen Ginsberg had vowed to levitate the Pentagon, and after which hundreds of protesters were arrested and a hundred were injured due to police brutality. Hearing Baez's description of the chaos and also the victory claimed by the protesters who believed they had succeeded in stripping the Pentagon of symbolic power, Jane started longing to be back in America, fighting for the future of the USA. Previously, in conversation with French people about the war in Vietnam, 
Jane had reflexively defended America. She couldn't imagine her country doing anything willfully wrong. This was naive, but the position of French people was equally skewed by nationalism and the not-at-all-distant experience of losing Vietnam as a French colony. Jane's point of view changed when she was stuck in bed during her pregnancy and started watching television coverage of the war for the first time. The European television coverage showed American pilots indiscriminately bombing civilian targets. When she was strong enough to get out of bed, Jane went with Simone Signoret to an anti-war rally in Paris. This was as close as Jane could get to being in the streets of the U.S., protesting America's involvement in Vietnam as an American on American soil. It just made her want to get closer. Around the same time, through her ex-stepmother Susan, Jane met a G.I. named Dick Perrin, who was against the war in Vietnam, and who was active in an organization called RITA, or Resistors Inside the Army. Perrin had given Jane a book, The Village of Ben Suk, by Jonathan Shell. Perrin had told Jane that when she read it, she would understand why he felt that it was his duty to speak out against what the U.S. military was doing in Vietnam. Jane read it, and she did understand. What she understood from author Shell's account of the bombing of the titular village— in an event known as Operation Cedar Falls, was that U.S. military brass's goal seemed to be to obliterate the Viet Cong with no concern for the large numbers of Vietnamese civilians whose lives would be irreparably damaged or taken away by the destruction of their farms and infrastructure. When Jane tried to talk about these issues with the people in her life, meaning mostly French people, they treated it like it was old news. You can't win a war in Vietnam, French people told her. Vadim was against the war, but he was too apathetic to do anything about it. Jane began to feel that she needed to do something, but she understood that she'd probably have to leave her husband in order to do it. Jane sought advice from Simone Signoret. After a long lecture about the history of French and American misadventures in the region, Signore concluded by posing a question to Jane. Your country has been betrayed by its leaders, she said. What are you going to do about it? Jane told her that she wanted to go home, but she felt she couldn't without leaving Vadim behind. And she couldn't do that. She was pregnant with his baby. And she had spent all her money building a life for them to share in the French countryside. In the following weeks, Jane watched from afar horrified, as first Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and then Robert Kennedy. There was unrest in France, too. Student protests aimed at the police and public officials erupted in early 1968 and escalated through the winter and spring. Not unrelated was the politically motivated firing of Henri Lingois, the director of the Paris Cinematheque, which inspired protests by French filmmakers with Jean-Luc Godard at the forefront. The French student radicals aligned themselves with Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, and Chairman Mao. By early May, classes at the University at Nanterre were suspended for fear of violence at a political meeting. The students instead took their fight to the streets of Paris, where they joined with local workers to occupy the Sorbonne. 
The students fought for days against the government and police, who were trying to quell the uprising with the use of water canisters, tear gas, and mass arrests. The struggles of the students inspired the people of Paris, and by the middle of May, all manner of workers were on strike and in the streets. Vadim was president of the French Filmmakers' Union, and he had to go to Paris for union meetings and negotiations. Jane, about halfway through her pregnancy, went with him. And at one of the union meetings, she met Jean-Luc Godard for the first time. At that meeting, the filmmakers voted to shut down the Cannes Film Festival. Vadim then insisted that Jane go to Saint-Tropez to wait for him to finish business. There, Jane floated in the ocean, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. She later wrote, It rocked me to my core. The summer ended, and Jane returned to the farmhouse outside of Paris. In late September, she gave birth to a girl, Vanessa Vadim. In a cloud of postpartum depression, Jane began exercising too soon after giving birth, and was forced to stay in bed when she began hemorrhaging. She had nothing but incentive to get back into shape quickly. When Vanessa was about a month old, Barbarella finally opened in theaters, and Jane did a flurry of press, defending her husband's vision and use of her as an icon of sexual liberation. Then, it was time to get back to work, not least because the Vadims were broke. The family moved back to Malibu, and Jane signed on for a new movie, They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, in which she'd play a desperate, Depression-era woman. She ran and swam in the ocean for miles a day, in order to get that breadline body. Jane would play Gloria, one of dozens of desperate contestants in a circa 1932 dance marathon. The contestants are promised that the couple that remains on the dance floor the longest will be awarded $1,500. But as the sadistic competition plays out, the game is revealed to be stacked in favor of the house. Shooting in one location, Director Sidney Pollack makes brilliant use of repetition to continually ratchet up the tension. In the sense that it is unrelentingly intense, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? is the Jane Fonda of movies. It's the Jane Fonda-iest Jane Fonda movie of Fonda's filmography up to this point. And because the whole movie is pitched at the level that her performances had previously been, Fonda herself is able to dial it back a bit. Now, this is a movie with a scene in which she literally drags a dying and then dead old man, her sailor suit-wearing dance partner, over a finish line in total denial. Like our ancient mariner may have taken a little spill. 
He's all right, don't leave him alone. He's all right. Get her out of here. Please. But there are also moments in which the character is resigned and Fonda underplays. By the end of the movie, she has lost her will to live. Something you can't imagine from the try-hard characters of her previous films. Even the jilted wife in La Curie, though virtually catatonic by that movie's end, throbs with the shock that comes with discovering that she is not the center of the universe. Jane's final scene in They Shoot Horses, Don't They? is almost silent, and she plays it with a stillness that hadn't been seen from her up to this point. Gloria was to have bobbed hair, in keeping with the period. Jane could have worn a wig. Instead, in keeping with the film's symbolic importance as Jane's graduation from the sex kitten roles that defined her 20s, she made the decision to cut her own glorious, butter-colored mane off. When Jane came home with her hair cut and dyed, Vadim knew this was the beginning of the end of their marriage. In Jane's mind, their marriage had started to end much earlier. But Vadim wasn't wrong to cite the haircut and the movie that necessitated it as majorly symbolic. Her long, blonde, fluffy, shiny hairdo had tied Jane to Vadim's previous loves, Bardot and Catherine Deneuve, and with it, she looked the part of the Frenchman's bombshell. Without it, she instantly projected a different personality. Cutting off her long, blonde hair was a symbolic castration of Vadim, a man whose identity was completely wrapped up in having blonde bombshells dependent on his creative abilities and promotional powers. Meanwhile, with Gloria, Jane was playing a character who had become totally deglamorized. Gloria might play by the rules made by men, but she never let them labor under the illusion that she liked it. In her marriage and in some of her movies, Jane had been playing characters who take what men deign to give them with a smile on her face. The entire character of Barbarella is about presenting a male fantasy of female sexuality as though it's a woman's empowerment fantasy. It would have been enough of an about-face for Jane to go from there to playing a character that didn't take any shit from anyone. But Gloria is actually somewhat more complicated than that. She takes the shit, because she has to, but she does it with the attitude of, I'm not going to thank you for feeding me this shit, and I don't like being part of a system that gives me no choice but either take it or die. After making They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, Jane realized that she did have a choice. She had moved into a dressing room on the Warner Brothers lot for the filming that had previously belonged to Mae West. When the movie was over, she cut her hair even shorter. And then she moved back to Malibu and Vadim. But she wouldn't be there long. She had changed. She didn't want to live a life dictated by her husband's obsession with his own comfort and pleasure. Not in a world in which there were more pressing problems than Vadim's quest for sexual variety. Not when there was a war going on that she felt increasingly motivated to protest. Vadim was feeling distanced, too. He realized that he had loved the quote-unquote submerged part of her personality that she kept hidden in order to be with him, but which since making They Shoot Horses Don't They, 
she had allowed to come out and redefine her. Living with the new Jane, Vadim later admitted, interested me less. Jane and Vadim attempted to save their marriage by behaving more like libertines than ever before. They spent time in New York, which Vadim praised for its decadence. There, while hanging out in Andy Warhol's factory in Max's Kansas City, Jane began having a relationship with a young man named Eric Emerson, a bisexual Warhol superstar. Later, back in Los Angeles, Jane and Vadim began spending time with Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. At their house one night, Jane and Jay Sebring disappeared together. They were gone for 30 minutes, until Polanski's housekeeper barged in on them in an upstairs bathroom. Jane came downstairs, rearranging her clothes, and said as she walked past Vadim, I hate it when something is half-finished. Then in August, J.C. Bring died. Along with Sharon Tate, he was one of the victims of the Manson family. Jane was deeply shaken, mostly by the murder of Tate, whom Jane had considered to be a pure soul. Jane saw the killings as evidence that something was rotten in the heart of Hollywood. That spring and summer of 1969, Peter Fonda dominated the box office as the star of Easy Rider, the generation-defining hit that helped usher out what was left of the old studio system in favor of a temporary period in which something like personal artistic and narrative expression was possible within commercial American filmmaking. But Jane did not feel empowered or emboldened by this cultural shift. If anything, she was losing interest in acting as she became more socially conscious. Jane had received some of the best reviews of her career for They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Pauline Kael praised Jane for taking chances as an actress that movie stars were often too vain to try, without allowing her star power to disappear. She has the true star's gift, Kale wrote, of drawing one to her emotionally, even when the character she plays is repellent. But by the time these reviews started rolling in, Jane was anxious to use her star power in a different arena. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Jane had been spending time with her neighbors, Donald Sutherland and his wife, Shirley Douglas. Shirley was a committed radical. Her father had been a Canadian politician who introduced that country's first single-payer universal health care program, 
and Shirley was even more committed to social reform in the States. Her key cause in the late 1960s was the Black Panthers. And Jane listened to what she had to say. At this time, Jane and Vadim's daughter Vanessa was one year old, but Jane felt uneasy with motherhood. She was still binging and purging. She felt consumed with the idea that her life lacked purpose and that she needed to get out of town to figure out what her purpose could be. She described her thinking during this period in a later interview. I met some of these GIs, and uh, I was just realizing that this, this war was going on and that I didn't know anything about it. I didn't even know where Vietnam was. That coincided with my having a baby. And uh, I would notice how every day in her life was so full. She was learning all the time, as children do. And I remembered how I used to be that way. And I remember how summer vacations would, would be like years because there was so much happening and so much learning going on. And now I was realizing, you know, three months, it just it goes by. I don't even know where it went. Years are going by in my life. And I don't even know why or what am I doing with them. And I... I just said my life is passing me by. And I guess that accelerated the sense of, uh, I gotta get out of here. Jane decided to flee the bad vibes of the summer of 1969, not to mention the parental and marital responsibilities that were too much for her at the moment. First, she went to India. After a few months, she felt no closer to the answer than when she had left. It was when she landed back in California that Jane had a revelation as she would later describe it. I uh, got onto a plane and arrived in Beverly Hills. And I'll never forget the series of events. I got off the plane, and I, as I walked past the magazine stand, there was a copy of, I don't remember what the magazine was, but on the cover was an American Indian woman with her fist in the air and painted in red paint behind her on a wall that said, Red Power. And I said, oh my God, you've got Indians too. That's right, and look what they're doing. <laughs> And I guess that was where I just said, I'm not going back. This is, I'm going to stay here. It took a moment in history where millions of people were changing to show me that there was another way to be. Back in Los Angeles, where she had to be for a promotional screening of They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Jane finally made a decision. She told Vadim that she would not return to Paris with him. Vadim understood. Jane wasn't seeking a new love affair, he said. She wasn't leaving me for another man. She was leaving me for herself. She had found her way. Jane would, at first, move into her father's house, returning to the source of anxiety which she had initially gone to Paris in part to get away from. But she would actually spend much of the next year on the road. In early 1970, Jane Fonda made her debut as a political activist. Jane was interested in a number of causes, including the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. She dedicated herself in the early months of 1970 to learning as much as she could. Carrying over the inspiration from that red power image at the airport, she visited Alcatraz in San Francisco, which a hundred Native Americans had occupied. The Native Americans wanted to turn the disused prison into a cultural center in which they could draw attention to the problems faced by indigenous people, such as unemployment, substance abuse, and suicide. Jane rode the ferry to Alcatraz with Peter Collier, an editor at Ramparts magazine. 
Collier recalled that as they floated over the bay, Jane told him she had been in Europe too long, and she was pleased to be home, quote, where it was happening. Collier joked that it was too late. After all, it was 1970 and the 60s were over. Jane did not take this as a joke. Oh, she responded, I hope not. Jane brought media attention to the sit-in just by being there. But she didn't want to speak for the Indians. She wanted to hear what they had to say. She ended up sharing a joint with a crew of Sioux leaders and chatting with a Vietnam vet named Sid Mills, who was working to restore his tribe's access to fishing in Washington state. A few weeks later, Jane accepted an invitation to come protest at Fort Lawton in Washington. This would be Jane's first American protest march as well as the site of her first arrest, for trespassing. Although she was not arrested before the military police took so much time fawning over Jane and taking Polaroids with her, that many Native American protesters were able to swarm past the cops and charge the gate of the fort. Though Jane would make friends in this movement, she would not commit to the Native American cause the way Marlon Brando had. According to her biographer, Patricia Bosworth, Jane had annoyed the Native Americans by drawing so much attention to herself. Eventually, she was asked by the movement leaders to lay low. At the same time, Jane began spending time in Northern California with members of the Black Panthers. She tried to rationalize the movement's militancy. I remember John Kennedy's words, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable, Jane wrote. We were reaping what we had sown. But ultimately, Jane felt she couldn't get behind the idea of fighting fire with fire, and she would later say her connection to the Panthers was brief and basically limited to helping them raise bail money. As we'll see in the coming episodes, Fonda's involvement with the Black Panthers was a bit more involved than that. But it would be the third movement in which Jane would dabble that she would find her identity as an activist. It would be the first identity that she would try on, but find impossible to shake. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman, and our logo is designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find information about our sources, music cues, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and rate and review us on iTunes, which really helps people find it. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.